Vice-Chancellor, uh, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to this very special event in the calendar of special events that Oxford University offers each year. Many thanks for your patience while we went through the extremely uh, complex process of not only loading this main cabin, but another cabin next door, which is called Premium Economy, <laughs> which is, uh, uh, to which um, the, the events here will be um, um, uh, broadcast. I'm David Watson, Principal of Green Templeton College. The college is privileged in the Trinity term of each year to welcome as a visiting fellow the Sanjaya Lal Professor of Business and Development. As many of you will know, Sanjaya Lal was the model of an engaged scholar who worried away to great and lasting effect about the deeper reasons why some economies fare better than others in our complex, highly interconnected world. He was Professor of Development Economics at Oxford and a Fellow of Green College up to his untimely death in 2005. The trustees have admirably kept his flame alight through this highly imaginative post, which involves not just the college, but also a host department each year in the university. In the past, this has been the Saeed Business School and the Blavatnik School of Government. This year, for obvious reasons, it's the Department of Economics. And on behalf of all of us, I would like to thank the trustees, not least Mrs. Rani Lal, the department and my colleagues in the college for all they've done to make this evening's event go smoothly so far. Um, and on behalf of the trust, I'd like to express sincere appreciation of their generous supporters, notably the government of Malaysia and the Kazana Nacional Berhard. Nobel laureate Professor Paul Krugman, on his way, as you know, from Princeton to the City University of New York, is the fourth Sanjay Alal professor. It would not be an exaggeration to say that his arrival in Oxford has been keenly awaited. In his latest weekly column, in what we in Europe haven't quite stopped calling the International Herald Tribune yet, <laughs> um, Professor Krugman um, concluded as follows, and I'm qu I quote, most of the waste and suffering that have afflicted Western economies this past five years was unnecessary. We have all along had the knowledge and the tools to restore full employment. But policymakers just keep finding reasons not to do the right thing. Now the trustees have assembled a terrific panel to discuss this and other ideas in the context of theories about long-term <coughs> and inevitable economic stagnation. And we also offer a warm welcome this evening to Lords Adair Turner and Robert Skidelsky. To introduce them and to explain how the evening will unfold, I'm now delighted to hand you over to our chair, head of the Department of Economics, Professor Tony Bennett. Tony, thank you. Okay, well, let me, let, let me add my thanks uh, to, to the Trust uh, for, for organizing this wonderful event uh, and bringing in three such uh, great speakers. It seems, it seems really appropriate um, that the speakers we have this evening are all people who are concerned with, with, with taking economics uh, and applying it to make the world a better place. It seems appropriate for, for this foundation, for the memory of Sanjay Lal, and it certainly... Uh, 
a, a task that these uh, the, the, the three speakers uh, perform uh, admirably uh, and importantly. Uh, Paul Krugman, uh, what is there to say? I guess everyone in this room has, has read something by him. So an academic career of absolutely, you know, the, the stratospheric uh, top, top class. Contributions to macroeconomics, uh, international trade, spatial economics, economic geography, and of course the, the Nobel Prize uh, for, for that work. But then of course the need to reach a wider audience, not just academics. So uh, writing for, for the New York Times, uh, blogging enormously successfully. And for those of you who don't know his blog, there's the Friday evening music version as well. So if you want to get up to date with the indie scene, I believe it's called, in Brooklyn, uh, Paul's Friday evening blog is, 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 is the one for you. And then tweeting, I think, with, what is it, 1.19 million followers. So that's reaching uh, a very substantial audience. But of course, Paul has always wanted to, to influence policy and to make sure that policy <coughs> is informed by thoughtful, uh, appropriate economics. And to do that, he's really entered the public debate. He's been enormously challenging uh, in that debate, uh, as, is, as is appropriate, but always, I think, with a view to saying, well, there is good economics out there that thoughtfully, appropriately applied can, can make the world uh, a better place. Paul's got, I think it's approaching 30-some books now. Um, he's, he doesn't know either. Um, about half academic, uh, half, half popular. Uh, one I notice is called, or rather I know is called, The, 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 the Conscience of a Liberal, uh, which I think sort of sums up his, uh, his political position. But also, of course, gives me a very good segue into the, uh, the, the other two speakers, both of whom I discovered last night uh, were more or less founder members of the Social Democratic Party uh, in, in the early 1980s. So there won't be a big, big fight here this evening, um, although they did enter the, uh, the SDP from, from, from different directions. I won't, won't say uh, which, which came from, from which direction. Uh, Robert Skidelsky, um, historian, economist, uh, biographer, and of course known uh, to, to, to all of you for the magnificent uh, set of volumes uh, that, that constitutes the, the biography of Keynes. And once again, the master par excellence of uh, doing good economics in order to uh, make, make the world a better place. And um, Lord Skidelsky's role in, 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 in writing uh, those biographies and um, uh, making them so accessible uh, is, is enormously important. Currently a professor at Warwick and working uh, on the future of work, uh, an important topic not unrelated to the, to the theme of this evening's talk. Uh, Adair Turner, currently a senior research fellow at INET, uh, taking a bit of a break, I guess, from a career first in the private sector and then in the public sector, and you'll all know him as chair of the Low Pay Commission, chair of the Pensions Committee, chair of the Climate Change, uh, committee, Chair of the Financial Services Authority, and no doubt several ESRC, uh, several other that uh, I've forgotten uh, on the way. Currently writing a book on uh, banking and why it's Im too important to be left to the bankers, I think was an approximation to your approximate working title. Anyway, I've said more than enough. Uh, the, the running order is obviously going to be Paul, uh, followed, by, followed by the two commentators, uh, I want to have 
a good deal of time at the end for, for questions from the audience. So we're not going to try and set up a big fight and debate on the platform, but we will uh, have, have, have time for, for questions uh, and, and responses. So with that, let me hand over to, to Paul. So, do I have, I'm sorry, I thought there was a mic up here, is there? You haven't been live. No, there wasn't supposed, there was supposed to be one sitting up here. No, no, there's a separate, all right. If that's doing it, if they're, if they're good, they're good. All right, sorry. Um, so let me say uh, how thankful I am for the invitation to spend this five weeks here and uh, how delighted I am to be here, especially, if I might say, because I wasn't entirely sure I was going to make it given the extended grilling I was given by the immigration officer who seemed to find <laughs> it extremely implausible that I was actually a professor. Um, well, yes, all right. Let me talk about what has happened. So we've been in the midst of an extraordinary catastrophe for, for the advanced countries, for the wealthy countries of the world. We, we, things have been, I think, if you, if you look at any kind of projection of where we were supposed to be economically made in 2006 or 2007, where we were supposed to be in this year 2014, and compare it with the actual outcome. It's been incredible. It's been incredibly catastrophic in terms of growth, in terms of employment, in terms of living standards. Uh, and what's really very strange about it is that it's a catastrophe that has come about not because something bad has gone wrong externally, but there's been no oil shock, there's been no uh, plague, there's been no, uh, you know, the weather has been bad, but not on a scale that would account for what we've seen. It's instead of a, a malfunctioning of, of the economic system. Actually, Keynes, uh, he, he's talked about having magneto trouble at the beginning of the Great Depression. Well, once again, we're having magneto trouble. What is really a, should be just a narrow technical problem that has nonetheless been, been awesome in its negative effect. And the, the way I like to explain it when I'm trying to just get the point across is it is about the composition effects of the economy. Think of the fact that my spending is your income, your spending is my income, so that if both of us decide that we must cut spending at the same time, we have a problem because our incomes go down and we are frustrated in our attempt to, to spend less than our income. The incomes fall to match the spending rather than the other way around. Uh, it seems like it ought to be a simple story to get across, but it's not. It turns out at several levels. One is that the conventional view in economics is, well, wait, there's something that, that equilibrates this, which is interest rates fall, which induces people to spend more. And that's what reconciles the spending decisions of all of the individuals out there. Um, then you say, well, but yes, that may be true for mild shocks, but what if interest rates cannot fall enough? What if interest rates go down to zero? Then we really do have a problem. Then we can no longer count on any simple mechanism to make sure that, that there is, in fact, enough spending in the economy. Uh, so that's one problem. So there was an actual economic problem. It turns out that it sounds like a technical thing, the zero lower bound on interest rates. That you cannot have interest rates below zero except bits and you know, tiny technical deviations, but essentially not. That, that, is, that shouldn't be important. That sounds so trivial, and yet it turns out to be enormously important. But the other thing that's a problem is that intellectually it's just incredibly hard to get across. And I know this because I try all the time. And maybe I'm doing a terribly bad job of it, but no one else seems to be able to get it across either. Uh, this is just not 
intuitive. It just does not suit people's preconceptions. And you can understand in a sense why, because if you take seriously that the problem we have is now that we have not an in insufficient ability to produce, not a, a, not a problem of technology or supply of raw materials or labor or any of those things, but simply an inadequacy of demand, then you find yourself in a kind of a looking glass world in which nothing behaves the way that you expect it to. And certainly in which analogies between the individual household and the economy as a whole, or between the household and the government, don't apply at all. And right at the beginning of, of the, the crisis, I tried to say this, I probably too clever in, in the rhetoric. I said, we've entered a world in which, uh, in which virtue is vice and prudence is folly. Uh, a world in which if people save more, which we think of as a good thing, that's actually bad. It depresses the economy. In fact, we're very much in the world where, with the classic paradox of thrift, where people collectively try to save more. The economy is depressed, meaning businesses are less willing to invest. And in fact, an increased desire to save translates into less, not more investment in the future. Uh, we're actually also in a world where there's a what uh, Gordy Egerton and I have been calling the paradox of flexibility, which you say, well, if we don't have, if we have unemployed people, what we need is wage cuts. And it turns out that flexibility of wages and prices actually makes things worse, because a large part of our problem is that there's too much debt out there, and the real value of that debt goes up if, if wages fall. So things that you expect to happen actually in many cases go in reverse, and no one will believe it. I think that is the, the fundamental problem that one encounters. I mean, not no one, obviously, hopefully, some of my students at least pretend to believe it until the final exam is passed. Uh, but the, um, but in, in the political world, in the world of affairs, no one will believe it. The enormous desire to see this as something that is more conventional, less counterintuitive, is vast. Now, there are vested interests as well, but I think a lot of the problem is simply intellectual. People just don't get it, don't want to get it. Uh, they, uh, you can talk to even people who are somewhat of the political left don't get it. The, the desire to say that that must be, if we have mass unemployment, long-term unemployment after all these years, uh, it must be because workers don't have the right skills. Uh, it must be structural problems of some form. Uh, the is, is very hard. And, and the policy implications, which are that this is not a time to be worried about budget deficits. This is not a time to be afraid that government spending displaces private spending, that everything is actually the opposite of, of what you believe doesn't get through at all. Um, and it's, it's, it's just been a extraordinarily frustrating to see how unwilling people are to see this, to how, how unwilling people are to accept that the rules are different in this kind of environment. So the one saving grace of this situation, the thing that has made at least it seem tolerable is the notion, well, okay, but this is, may, maybe it's turned out to be extremely difficult to get people to grasp a demand side, a demand constrained economy. It's been very difficult to get people to understand that when you're on the other side of the looking glass, policy doesn't work the way you thought it did. Uh, but this, this will pass. After all, this can only be a brief episode. This is not going to be the way it will be for an extended period of time. Well, um, so uh, we're now, so I'm using US data in all of these charts, partly because I know, I know my way around it better, but also I think it's a little clearer. We don't have as many distracting factors. Uh, we've been in this world of zero, interest rates are zero and zero is not low enough for more than five years now. We, we entered the liquidity trap. We hit the zero lower bound on interest rates in 2008, about the time that <coughs> Lehman failed. Uh, we are still there. Uh, the Fed's 
um, Federal Reserve's Open Market Committee, they, the minutes suggest that the, the consensus view of the members of that committee is that interest rates will finally rise above zero sometime next year. Um, I would actually guess they're probably wrong, but even if that's true, um, we used to say, look, actually it used to be that people said the chance of hitting the zero lower bound, the chance that zero interest rates would be not low enough is, is very small, surely not more than 5% in any given year. But if you look at the period since we basically licked inflation, since we had the low inflation era, which reaches back to around 1986 or so, uh, we've spent seven out of 30 years, or we will if the Fed is right, we will have spent seven out of 30 years in this bizarre world where virtue is vice and prudence is folly. It's starting to look like it's a much, much bigger, much more prevalent thing. We, we will have spent about a quarter of, a quarter of modern history uh, in, this, in this environment. And that's bad. That suggests this is a pretty serious problem, but it gets much worse if you think that actually there's a trend. That in fact, it's not simply that it turns out that depression economics, the world of John Maynard Keynes is a much more realistic thing to be worried about in, in the 21st century than we thought, but that it is increasingly uh, something to be worried about. Uh, and that is the doctrine which has the unfortunate name in the sense that no one hearing it knows what it means, the, the notion of secular stagnation. Uh, secular stagnation, which was the proposition, I, at least I would phrase it as the proposition that things like this, things like the 1930s or like this extended period of being depressed that we've been going through, uh, since 2008, um, that they are increasingly likely that we have an economy that is increasingly prone to getting into situations in which the normal tools of policy, the normal ideas about policy don't work, in which you really need to be doing counterintuitive things, in which you need to be intellectually adventurous and flexible. And since policymakers are not, uh, with very rare exceptions, uh, you are stuck, and you have very prolonged episodes of, of depressed economies. Um, the doctrine dates back, there's quite a bit of it in Keynes, I'm sure that Lord Skidelsky can tell us more about that. Um, it was given the name and a pretty clear exposition by the American economist Alvin Hansen in 1938, uh, who proposed that declining population growth were going to make secular stagnation the norm looking forward. As it turned out, that didn't happen because there wasn't declining population growth. We had this great baby boom after the World War II, so we never got a test of whether it was possible. It just didn't happen. Um, it's been, a number of people have been revised, reviving some version of that doctrine. Uh, Adair has spoken about it, I have spoken about it, and then to my great annoyance, uh, Larry Summers gave an absolutely terrific exposition at the IMF's research conference last year, which was, which was so much better than anything I had written that it, it's become, uh, it really, it was, it, was, it was excellent. But it was also very important. It's telling you that, that people who are not exactly fringe cranks are, are, are advocating this view. Um, why should we believe this, and what, what does it mean? Um, well, here's how I put it. Uh, first, there's a fair bit of evidence looking backwards, uh, that we are in fact increasingly prone to episodes in which monetary policy is not good enough, at least in which conventional monetary policy is not good enough. Um, and you can see this in various ways. Uh, actually, the IMF has done some, some work very much along these lines. I'll give you a simple picture, which I think is rather helpful here. Uh, these are real interest rates. Actually, it's the policy interest rate. So it's the federal funds rate. It's the 
very short-term interest rate that, that the Fed does effectively control. And I subtracted core inflation, the, the rate of, of change of, of prices excluding volatile components like food and energy. Uh, just to give you an estimate of, of the real interest rate, because this is what we think should matter. And I've just taken averages across whole business cycles, which is because obviously this thing fluctuates a lot. But you want to take a look at, at, the, um, at how it's, um, you, want, you want to spread across the peaks and valleys. And so, okay, more than you want, more, too much information, the, the 1980, there was a double dip recession at the beginning of the 80s, so I combine it all into one story. So there's essentially the Reagan, the Reagan-Bush um, business cycle, the, the Bush-Clinton business cycle, and the, uh, the Bush-again business cycle. And then there's, of course, we haven't exited, really. We haven't hit a new peak. Or if we do, I, it's going to be a long, long way off. Uh, but, but think of those three business cycles. And what you see is that each successive cycle was required lower interest rates than the last one to get out of. Um, in fact, we had to have a negative real interest rate for a while in the early 2000s. Uh, and that wasn't enough to prevent us from having extended jobless recovery. So it was actually quite hard getting out of that one. In fact, each, of the, each, of, each successive slump has been harder to get out of with the one that we are still struggling with, uh, even more the case. And the, the real interest rate that seems to be necessary on average over a business cycle keeps falling. And we can think about reasons why that's happening, uh, or why, reasons why that happened to date. I think there's a pretty good case to be made that, in fact, we were looking at a slowing of the demand for investment, that there was, in fact, some pent-up uh, demand on, on that still coming out of, out of the war that, that propelled the economy for quite a while. Maybe also that people didn't quite adjust to the notion that inflation was lower and that holding on to cash wasn't as good an idea or wasn't increasingly, wasn't as bad an idea as it had previously been. But in any case, you can see that happening so that even even in that 2000-2007 cycle, it was not easy. The Fed was getting, we were, we were flirting with something like the stagnation that we've had since the 2008 crisis, even during that cycle. Um, and the amazing thing is that that was happening even though, across all of that, we had an extraordinary surge in debt. We had, actually if you look, those, those last two cycles, uh, previous to the current one, those are the two greatest bubbles in the history of humanity. First, the dot-com technology bubble, which we thought was a big deal at the time, although we had no idea. Uh, and then the housing bubble, which just as an aside, I find an amazing thing. I mean, I can understand how people could become somewhat irrational over, over a new technology that had, was of unknown potential, and they could somehow imagine that every, every uh, you know, uh, cat picture site was somehow going to be the next Microsoft, but uh, housing, housing, housing's been around since the Babylonians. How could we really think that there was something new there that the rules had changed? But still, we did um, put it together. You get this rather. I gather that there has the same picture. This is U.S. and you see it actually. One of the, one of the actually quite interesting things about that that last cycle is how similar uh, in the large, in the macro sense, the United States and Europe are. That is, you, anyone who wants to attribute things to particulars of policy uh, of the um, U.S. housing agencies or, or whatever uh, has to explain why the picture is so very similar if you take the aggregate for, 
the European Union and the aggregate for the United States. But in any case, here we are, drastic rise in, in household debt, um, obviously uh, unsustainable. So what we had, one way to think about, actually, does it, does it have a, oh, I've got two of these screens, so I won't do it. Um, Horrifying to say when I use this in class, I refer to this as my sonic screwdriver and the students know what I'm talking about. But anyway, the, um, uh, the, uh, that, that period of expansion, which was pretty disappointing from 2000 to 2007, took place despite the fact that households were borrowing on an unprecedented scale. Then we had a moment of crisis when people said, oh my god, there's too much debt out there and people either chose to or were forced to start paying down debt. So we had deleveraging. That's often, I'm not sure that's the full story of what happened, but it's a, it's a relatively easy to tell story about what happened. But the point is, even if we stop that, even if that downward turn at the end turns out to be only a, a temporary event, um, we're not going to resume that upward slope. We cannot continue to borrow at the rate we were. And if you do the arithmetic there, you'll see that over that seven-year period of expansion, um, Households were borrowing about 4% of GDP per year, expanding their debt by about 4% of GDP. So simply the fact that that can't happen again means that you're taking something like 4% of GDP off demand. That's a, that's a pretty big hit to demand, which leads you to think that the, even, even once the, the financial crisis is over, you still have a really major drag on the economy coming from the fact that where, what we had before wasn't, was based upon an unsustainable growth in household debt. Um, that's pretty bad. That's, that's a reason to think not just that there's some downward trend, but in fact it's going to be much, much harder to restore full employment than it was before. But that's not the end of the story. There's something else. So if you go back to Hansen uh, and what he had to say in 1938, his central concern was population growth. And as I said, that turned out to be not right because there was, in fact, a big surge in population uh, after the war. Uh, but it, it was an interesting point. It was not a foolish thing for him to emphasize, given that there had been a great slowing of population growth. Well, we are going through some of that. Um, now, actually, the Japanese, I should say, what many of us who got into this started by studying Japan. And when Japan entered its lost decade, which then turned into two lost decades, the, there were, I think many Western economists looked and said this is, must show just how messed up the Japanese are. Uh, but there were some of us who did look at Japan and say, you know, once you get past the superficials, this is, a, this is a lot like us. This is an advanced economy, stable government, public policy officials who are obviously not ideal but are not idiots. If they can get stuck this way, it can happen to us as well, and sure enough, it did. Uh, one of the things that we did conclude was likely a problem with Japan was demography that the uh, drastic slowdown in Japanese population growth and, in fact, the reversal. Japan has had a shrinking working age population now for quite some time was probably an important factor. Well, we're not there, but quite remarkable, actually. Look at the United States. Baby boomers, obviously baby boom generation starts in 1946. It starts to hit retirement age um, at, uh, in 2010. Um, and the working age population growth has slowed to a crawl. Uh, why does that matter? Well, as the population expands, that creates a demand for investment. It creates uh, other things being equal. It's a phrase there, other things equal. 
Expanding population creates a demand for investment. It creates a demand for new housing. It creates a demand for new factories, new office parks to accommodate the uh, growing workforce. Uh, to a first approximation, you would think that, actually, we, to a first approximation, we think that if interest rates are the same, if the cost of capital is the same, the capital stock will want to expand um, at the same rate as GDP. And so if capital is about three times GDP, which it is these days, 1% uh, of GDP growth is investment that's around 3% around of GDP. If we lop off, these are, these are decade rates of growth, if you lop off a percentage point from the underlying growth of the population, you're lopping something like three points of GDP off demand for investment. You can add, if, if we think that technology is slowing, and that's one of those impossible debates. I mean, it's important, but it's also impossible. Uh, do we get excited about how clever these things are, or do we say, as, as, as Peter Thiel said, we, we wanted flying cars and we got 140 characters? Um, which, which way is it? But either way, if you add that, it's even worse. Think about, this is my, my main point here. Um, suppose I think I'm going to give you numbers, which are you know, half-baked, but I think that's what we can do. If we take the combination of the end of the great debt bubble, which is something like 4% of GDP lost demand, plus the slowing of population growth and possibly productivity growth, that's something like 3%. In effect, nature is giving us an incredible austerity policy, a non-fiscal contraction, but equi functionally equivalent to a fiscal contraction of something like 7% of GDP. Right? This, this makes uh, Cameron Osborne seem like, like uh, uh, you know, nice guys. Uh, this is this is this is huge relative to anything that it's 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 on the scale, right? It's 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 not quite up to a Greek level, but it's it's austerity. It is an austerity, but it's a, it's a it's a hit to demand that is comparable to a very drastic austerity policy, coming simply out of the fact that we were living based on a heavy accumulation of debt and also on the expectation of growth that probably is not there to begin with. What does this mean? It means that we probably are looking at a situation where it's hard to avoid prolonged episodes of a depressed economy. Where uh, and it does not mean a crisis, and that's kind of important in a bad way, we'll explain in a second. But it probably means that a, a, a sustained period of, basically it says, it says that the kind of world we've been living in since 2008 may well be the new normal. It doesn't mean that, that you never have growth. Every once in a while, the economy will expand. Actually, if you look at the Great Depression, there were periods of economic expansion there. If you look at Japan's lost decade, you find out that in most years, the GDP grew. Uh, but the problem is it's never enough to take up the slack, never enough to really bring the economy back to full employment, and then you go down again. Does that mean nothing can be done? Absolutely not. We understand this pretty well, and in fact, it should be easy to avoid this fate. First of all, interest rates. Well, zero is a lower bound on the nominal interest rate. It's not a lower bound on the real interest rate. And if the world is telling you there are not inv enough investment opportunities to make use of savings at the current real interest rate, you need to get that real interest rate lower. So if you can convince people that there will be higher inflation, then they won't sit on cash. And you can possibly, certainly at least in principle, you should be able to maintain uh, full employment uh, as long as you can have a sufficiently high, credible target rate of inflation. That may be difficult, or then people may object, but then there's a second line of defense, which is uh, if you have things that you want to do in the way of public investment, 
and God knows we do uh, in, in many of our countries. Um, borrowing is very, very cheap. You really should not be very worried about the fiscal side, so you could be doing a lot of public investment. The policies are actually not hard, and if you had a naive view of policy, which is that politicians simply do things that feel good for everybody, you would think, well, of course, they'll do it. You know, printing money, borrowing, that has to be easy, right? Well, it turns out it's not. It turns out not at all. It turns out that the really difficult thing is getting politicians to do stuff that is free, um, free and, and beneficial because of the tremendous power of conventional thinking, the tremendous power of the desire to see things as being as they were in what used to be normal times. Uh, I've been thinking about traps. I'm actually uh, in the process of, of I'm trying to winnow down my list of traps because I'm doing a paper for the, an ECB conference where it will be ignored. Um, about, in which I talk about a number of, of traps. Uh, so there's the liquidity trap, which is zero law, and uh, so on and so on. But there are two that bother me particularly looking at this stuff, um, which I've been calling um, the complacency trap and the, liquidity, and the, um, and the timidity trap. Uh, so the complacency trap is this. Um, what we're talking about now is, if, if I'm right, if this is the way the world is going to be looked for quite a while, we're talking for about a world in which any individual year may not seem so bad, at least from the point of view of, of politicians. There's a huge literature um, in political science on the determinants of elections, mostly for the US, but I think we do, I believe the conclusions apply more broadly, which say that the absolute level of economic performance matters not at all. What matters is the growth rate in the run up to the election, a relatively short period, maybe six months, maybe nine months, possibly a year, not much more than that. In fact, actually, if you take it seriously, the, if, you, if you apply one of these vote equations, it actually says that the optimal policy for a government that wants to be reelected with a landslide is to throw the economy into a gratuitous recession when it takes office so that it can have a boom in the last year before the next election, which is kind of what your government is, anyway. Um, <laughs> um, but. Um, and that does say that a government can preside over year over year, year after year of, of really lousy performance, but in most years there's some growth, and there's some growth in the year running up to the election. Um, and they can say, oh, it's good enough. They're somewhat similar. Central bankers, central bankers do understand that deflation is a very bad thing. They, they think that they mostly worry about inflation, but they do understand that deflation is bad. Um, and if modern economies were prone to the kind of deflationary spiral that the world saw in the early 1930s, I think we could count on the bankers to do something. Uh, they were very good, actually, at dealing with the acute phase of the financial crisis. But we also seem to have pretty clear evidence that modern advanced economies don't have big deflationary spirals, that there's enough rigidity of wages, perhaps other things, that even after years and years and years of being depressed, at, at most, you get a slow crawling deflation. The great Japanese deflation has never been much more than 1% a year. Um, and in fact, Japan appears to be exceptional. We're not quite sure why. But if you look at PLOGs, uh, prolonged large output gaps, you look at the effects of, of, of persistently depressed economies, um, almost none of them actually end in deflation. They always end up with slow inflation, inflation that's too low, almost certainly, from a, a number of points of view, but not actual deflation which means that there's no action-forcing event. There's nothing that forces the central bank to respond. Um, and also, 
that the, uh, it's relatively easy to start making excuses. Uh, so if you're a longtime Japan watcher, you know that for many, many, many years, the Bank of Japan presided over deflation, but they said, well, but you know, all the deflation is falling prices of technologically progressive goods. So what's the problem with that? And the answer is, well, yeah, but you know, if you, if, if it's, yeah, you don't have deflation if you take out the goods whose prices are falling. Um, you can hear some of that from the ECB now, where they say, well, all the deflation is falling prices in the debtor countries. And they, yeah, right, and that's, that's where it does the most harm. But very, very easy to make excuses and not to act. Uh, so you, that's, that's a big issue. And then even if you do decide that something must be done. So finally, uh, the Bank of Japan is, I mean, that's great. Uh, ben Bernanke, Lars Fenson, Mike Woodford, myself, a few you know, American economists gave them some advice about what they should do, and they're, they're taking it uh, 16 years later. Um, the, um, but then there's a problem, which is that the policies to work, these policies generally have to be quite radical. Uh, suppose that you announce a target of 2% inflation, and markets believe you, but it turns out that your economy really needs the expectation of 4 or 5% inflation to restore full employment. Well, what will happen is perhaps the markets believe you for a little while, the economy perks up a bit, but not enough to end the deflation, and you slide back down again. So, so doing half measures, which is, of course, what politicians in general tend to do. Did I say something wrong? <laughs> All right. The uh, um, is a, maybe if I back up something will happen, or nothing. Whatever. Okay. Uh, there we are. Um, so if you, go on to here. The, um, it, it's you. This is where we may very well be in a situation where only quite radical policies, only a radical rethink, and then implementing that rethink is going to work. Good luck with that. I think is the way one has to look at it politically. Um, so I'm finding it extremely. Um, it's funny, I was going to say frightening, but that's not quite right, because the problem with this, in a way, is that nothing drastic happens. It's just year after year of lousy performance, year after year of, of wasted resources, and more important, blighted lives, because it's a terrible thing. Uh, certainly in, in the United States, we have, we have a society that is not set up to handle long-term unemployment, and yet we have this extremely persistent long-term unemployment with enormous uh, consequences. Uh, like, I suppose we're supposed to end with some uplifting thoughts about how it can all be resolved. But let me just say, this is a very difficult problem, and it is infuriating because it is gratuitous. None of this needs to be happening. The resources are there, the skills are there, and the economic models are there, but no one will believe it. Thanks. Straight over, as I said, there'll be questions at the end, opportunity for questions then, but um, hand straight over to uh, Bob Skidelsky. Um, do we have, where's, where's my little thing that it's I right need there. to write there? Thanks. Um, I'm delighted and honored to have been asked to respond to uh, Paul um, on the subject of secular stagnation. Uh, he sort of, at the end of his talk, he um, uh, said that one of the great obstacles to um, making any, any um, progress in, 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 in tackling the, the, the problems um, <coughs> we face um, is the power of conventional thinking. Um, and I would certainly agree with that. But I would also add um, 
to that, the power of concentrated wealth, um, which was e emphasized by Karl Marx, of course, and has recently been reinforced by Thomas Piketty. And I think if one's thinking about the history of policy, the relationship between power and ideas is actually the most difficult to get a handle on. But it's, uh, you, need, you need to bring both into the equation um, to, um, to, to get a handle on it. Now, my possible comparative advantage in this very distinguished company may be a little, a little extra knowledge of the historical context in which the idea of secular stagnation uh, gained traction. And so my main comment on Paul's argument will be mainly directed to this aspect of the topic. And what I hope my um, historical treatment will um, show is the continuity between the older and the contemporary discussion after a long intermission um, uh, uh, after the Second World War. Now, the chief historical context for the emergence of secular stagnation was the incomplete recovery from the Great Depression. Thus, Alvin Hansen in 1938... Now, the idea of secular stagnation appears in three main guises. Underemployment equilibrium, weakness in the inducement to invest, and the increasing difficulty of filling the investment gap as the returns to new investment fall while saving habits persist. Those are the three contexts I want to concentrate on. Now, first, underemployment equilibrium. On page 30, chapter 2 of Keynes's General Theory, it is stated that the economic system may find itself in a stable equilibrium with N at a level below full employment. Now, how is that possible, a stable equilibrium um, with, um, uh, with, with uh, le less than full employment? Well, Keynes's answer, as you all know, is that a market economy adjusts to a shock by changes in income rather than by changes in relative prices the stable propensity to consume, making changes in income the equilibrating factor. Hence, the case in these circumstances for an exogenous injection of demand to get idle factors back to work. Now, without this um, uh, intervention, Keynes has his trade cycle. There is a chapter on the trade cycle, chapter 22 of the general theory, which oscillates around the underemployment equilibrium which his model has established as possible. There are no further equilibrating mechanisms to be had, merely the lapse of time. The lapse of time produces a pickup of investment due to the depreciation and obsolescence of the existing capital stock, the absorption of surplus stocks, and reinvestment of working capital. That's on the real side. On the, money, on the monetary side, the fall in the rate of interest eventually comes about because of a decrease in the demand for transaction, transactions balances as a result of the decline in business activity. But this cycle goes on, but recovery is limited because whereas saving increases more or less mechanically with income, 
investment is restricted by the depressed profit expectations and hoarding which the slump itself has engendered. So the increased saving leads to a new collapse. In the absence of stimulating events, conditions of semi-slump can persist indefinitely. We can see then how a short-run theory of underemployment equilibrium can, with a given set of expectations, become a long-run theory of, of stagnation. But it isn't yet secular stagnation in the way the term is generally used because we have not yet reached the stage of full investment, by which Keynes means a state of affairs in which the supply of capital would have been increased to a point at which it would yield no net uh, return above its replacement cost. In the state of underemployment equilibrium, which I've just described, uh, there are plenty of opportunities for investment uh, which cannot be exploited in the given state of expectations. So that's the first of my topics. The second, the weakness of the inducement to invest. Advocates of the real as opposed to the monetary theorists of the business cycle of that day <coughs> believe that investment occurs in clusters or waves associated with inventions, discoveries, development of new resources, new products, and new industries. Keynes, adopted, Keynes wasn't a business cycle theorist, but he adopted um, uh, the argument to the needs of his own theory. It was only in periods of entrepreneurial excitement, he claimed, that market economies approached their production possibility frontiers. The normal condition was always mediocre, the slump was only an extreme version of the long-run normal. Keynes explained the historical mediocrity of investment performance by the existence of uncertainty, which depressed the marginal efficiency of capital while raising the premium for parting with liquidity. Uncertainty was permanent, but in a slump, uncertainty increased raising lenders and borrowers' premier simultaneously. So Keynes' historical vision is summed up as follows. There's been a chronic tendency throughout human history for the propensity to save to be stronger than the inducement to invest. The weakness of the inducement to invest has been at all times key to the economic problem. It was the existence of this unquantifiable risk which led Keynes to say that investment was peculiarly dependent on animal spirits, on spontaneous urge to action rather than inaction. And I leave to one side the question of the rationality of animal spirits and associated phenomena like herd behavior, which is much discussed at the moment. And so my slide three, a boom is a situation in which over-optimism triumphs over a rate of interest which in a cooler light would seem to be excessive. Now that is consistent with misdirected investment, the overproduction of some assets, which while profitable to their owners, represent, simply represent social waste in, in, in Adair's um, famous phrase. Keynes interpreted the run-up to the 1929 crash as a, typic, a typical speculative boom in which risks were underpriced and profits absurdly overestimated. 
In Vixel's terms, which have been recently uh, revived by Paul, Larry Summers and others, the natural or equilibrium rate of interest before 1929 had fallen at the precise moment when the market rate of interest was being raised to choke off the speculative boom on Wall Street and substitute real estate and financial um, um, uh, 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 dealings for, for securities. And this is a pretty good interpretation of what led up to 2007-2008. Now I come to my third topic, which is secular stagnation proper. Um, this is suggested by the thought that Historically, a full employment rate of investment has been the result of an exceptional conjuncture of factors. And I have another quote, quotation from Keynes here. A rather ponderous one. <clears throat> During the 19th century, the growth of population and invention, the opening up of new lands, the state of confidence, and the frequency of war over the average of, say, each decade, seems to have been sufficient, <coughs> taken in conjunction with the propensity to consume, to establish a schedule of the marginal efficiency of capital, which allowed a reasonably satisfactory level of employment to be compatible with a rate of interest high enough to be psychologically acceptable to welfare. <coughs> not, one of his, not one of his most succinct <laughs> summaries. <coughs> Notice here, though, but it does contain everything of importance, really that portmanteau quotation, that the conjuncture Keynes described was a mixture of objective factors, population growth, inventions, the opening of new continents, and wars, and subjective factors, the state of confidence and the degree of liquidity preference. What we might term the pure theory of secular stagnation rests on the idea that the objective factors making for economic expansion, population growth, opening up of new lands, wars, have come to an end, or at least are no longer sufficient to overcome the subjective factors holding it back, at least in the developed world, in the absence of large public investment programs. Absent these, growth will simply peter out. And this was the gloomy prospect presented by Alvin Hansen in his 1938 book, from which Paul's already quoted. The frontier for the entire world is largely gone, the expanding frontier, and population is approaching stabilization, if not indeed decline. In view of the prevailing and probably increasing cost rigidities, that was one of the factors emphasized by Hansen, and in view of the possibility of a slowing down in capital-consuming technological innovations, the problem of structural secular unemployment is almost certain to present itself for solution in the decades before us. Now, it's fashionable now to say how wrong Hansen was, but his argument makes a lot of sense, given his assumptions, which turned out to be wrong, but they weren't foolish assumptions to make. We did have a huge capital-consuming war, plus many smaller wars, plus a long Cold War. We have had two war-induced baby booms, and rich country populations have been boosted by immigration, New private investment opportunities and markets were opened up in the developing and ex-communist world, and Western governments, very important, pursued large-scale civilian investment programs. Now, in, 
so in a way, it wasn't that he was wrong, but uh, governments uh, fortuitously or deliberately did the kind of things he advocated uh, in order to avoid um, the secular stagnation which he saw looming, uh, looming ahead. But it's possible to argue that these things merely postponed the inherent tendency of the real rate of return on capital to fall below the minimum rate of interest psychologically acceptable to wealth holders. And this could be the case. We don't know how it's going to go now, but it could be the case with digital technology. Bryn Jolfson and McAfee have argued the returns to capital might fall uh, because digital technology is more easily replicated than the older machine-based technology. So what they call our brilliant technology is not necessarily going to overturn the logic of secular stagnation as, as depicted by uh, Hansen. Now, my last thought. There is an assumption in the choice of the phrase secular stagnation or secular unemployment that we have by no means reached the state of full investment when we can afford to devote ourselves to non-economic goals. Secular stagnation is presented as a threat but could it be a promise? Um, let me end where I began with Keynes. Keynes did believe that the returns to new investment would fall towards zero for much the same reasons Hansen gave. But he saw this not as a threat, but as an indication that humanity was solving its economic problem. Um, he um, believed that if we avoided depressions, a very, very important if, uh, we would reach a state of full investment in about 25 years. He was writing this in the mid-1940s. And that the challenge was to convert growing capital abundance into consumption and leisure by means of a redistribution of income and a reduction in the hours of work. In other words, secular stagnation should lead to economic possibilities for our grandchildren. Well, uh, good evening, everybody. It's an enormous pleasure to be here and a huge pleasure in particular to be talking with both Paul and Robert, people whose work I have admired for many years, indeed, I think probably decades, uh, it is true. Uh, there is one problem, though, which is uh, if you came here tonight uh, expecting a sort of intense debate between alternative schools of thought, you invited uh, the wrong three people uh, because we do broadly uh, agree on, on many, many issues here. But I'll try and suggest some areas where perhaps a, some additional thoughts uh, that I'd like to put forward. But let me begin by agreeing very much with three points that uh, Paul made. One, what has occurred over the last five or six years is an economic disaster. We are now running with GDP in the UK something like 10 or 12% below any reasonable expectation that you would have put forward in 2007. And over the period 2007 to 17, there is going to be in the UK almost no increase whatsoever in GDP per capita. When you look at the long-term historical record, you will find that that has only occurred in one peacetime decade before, since the very emergence of market capitalism in the early 19th century. This is a disaster, one. 
Two, it is fundamentally a problem of demand. We can all debate the sort of stuff that Robert Gordon has put forward about whether or not the rate of productivity growth is slowing down over time, and maybe it is, but that's not what has caused this problem. This problem is due to a shortage of demand. And third, it's soluble. There are many problems in economics to which there are no definitive certain technical answers. There can be disputes about distribution between uh, different classes within society. There can be changes in uh, available technologies. There can be external shocks. But the one thing which we could always find a solution to is a shortage of aggregate nominal demand. It is a definitively solvable problem. So I'm going to start with that thought and end with that thought. But let me just to set the context of what I'm going to say, first of all flip through six key facts about what's been going on in the world that I think are useful in order to, to understand the issues. Four of them are set out on this chart, and then I'll expand two as subsets on them. They are rising inequality, a rising wealth-to-income ratio, rising leverage, and falling interest rates. So rising inequality, well-familiar fact, this from the U.S. The U.S. Uh, bottom 20% have received no increase in real income per capita uh, for the last 30 years. The top 1% have received an increase of three times. Why has it occurred? Maybe globalization, maybe change in social norms. I, I think like Robert, are um, considerably uh, convinced by the arguments which uh, Brynjolfsson and McAfee have uh, put forward uh, that there is a large technological role there. But whatever the cause, it is a fact. Second point, the very significant increase in the world capital to income ratio, which has been pointed out by Thomas Piketty in his uh, justifiably uh, famous uh, book. But third... I, uh, for, third point I want to stress is a particular feature which is in Piketty's book, and indeed this chart is taken from Piketty's book, which I don't think he himself has stressed enough, that by far the biggest increase of that wealth-income ratio is driven by housing, the green bit there for France, and effectively, not by the constructed value of the houses, because we haven't built all that many houses, by, by the increase in the value of the urban land on which the houses sit. If you actually look at the blue bit versus the green bit and go back to about 1950 or 70, the wealth income ratio of all the capital apart from housing, as you can see on that chart, hasn't gone up. The whole of the increase in the wealth income ratio is an urban land phenomenon. Something that needs to take us back to some of the ideas of irreproducible capital Capital which simply exists as a given land and the rent from land, uh, which is there in Ricardo, uh, but which we haven't paid enough attention to. A fourth phenomenon, again, uh, Paul showed it, was this extraordinary increase in private domestic credit as a percent of GDP. Paul showed it for the US. This is for all the advanced economies combined uh, over the last 50 years. But the other point I want to add to that is that this leverage is about leverage against housing. This chart is taken from a very good new paper being produced by Alan Taylor and Maurice Schullerich, who work at uh, UC Davis. Oh, sorry, I skipped over it. This chart, this chart, <laughs> this chart shows what percentage of bank lending is against real estate. And the fundamental point to realize is that 50 or so years ago, banks significantly did what finance theory says they do. 
which is take deposits from householders and lend it to businesses to do capital investment. The vast majority of what banks do now is not that. The vast majority is a recycling within the household sector, or indeed from the corporate sector to the household sector, and it funds residential real estate, and it funds commercial real estate. And then finally, the fall in interest rates, which I've shown here, the real yields to maturity on UK index linked gilts, so that is an ex-ante expected real risk-free return, which had already fallen from the mid-1980s to about 4% to about 1.5% on the eve of the crisis, and then for, fell to zero or negative levels uh, thereafter. Now, looking at these facts, I think there are really two separate questions we need to ask, looking at this chart in particular. First, what has happened in the last seven years? Why have we got zero or negative real interest rates, but we haven't managed to stimulate the economy? But also, why did we have that very big fall in interest rates even before the crisis occurred? Now, I actually think the first question is the easier question to answer. I think the fundamental reason why we are in this period of very low, weak recovery, slow recovery from the recession is quite straightforward. We are suffering from a very big debt overhang effect, which is the result of too big a build-up of private sector leverage, the chart we saw before, ahead of the crisis. Right. Sorry. I thought you were going to adjust one of my slides there, Paul. <laughs> um, and we ought to have known that this could occur because there was, and Paul has already mentioned to it, as it were, a canary in the mine which should have told us what happens when an over-leveraged boom busts, and that canary was Japan. Japan had an enormous credit boom in the 1980s, again, concentrated on real estate. That bursts in 1990. <coughs> And you then get, and I think it is very well described in Richard Koo's book, a period of time in which corporates feeling themselves over-leveraged are absolutely determined to pay down their private sector leverage whatever the interest rate which monetary policy establishes. And so what you get in Japan in the early 1990s is the red line there, which is private non-financial corporates, going from a position of being net borrowers from the financial system and from the rest of the economy and becoming <coughs> net savers, absolutely determined to pay down the debts that they've got because they feel that they are over-leveraged. Now, the good news is that there tends to be a natural offset to that, which is government deficits, and that's the blue line moving into a deficit position, and it occurs naturally because the economy slows down, tax revenues fall, social expenditures go up, and you end up with a deficit without which, I think it is fair to say, Japan would have gone not merely into two decades of slow growth, but into a real Great Depression. But you have the problem that the necessary impact of that is that you then have a relentless increase in public debt. So if we now look in stock terms, what has happened in Japan over the last 20 years is a very slow deleveraging of the corporate sector, offset by a relentless rise in public leverage, which is gross debt to GDP, gross government debt to GDP there, the blue line, going to 230% and still rising. And that is what happens after an excess private leverage boom. We enter a period in which, essentially, we know how to shift the leverage 
from the private sector to the public sector, but we have no idea how to get rid of it. And that pattern which was seen in Japan is exactly the pattern which we have seen in the rest of the advanced economies over the last five years. Here are the figures for the UK, for the US, and for Spain. In each of them, you can see in the green and the red line to different extents the beginning of private sector deleveraging, but in each you can see that public leverage has gone up more than private leverage has come down. For every percentage GDP fall in private leverage, there has been a more than percentage increase in public debt uh, to GDP. Now, the crucial issue is, should we worry about that? Or should we say simply with Paul that, but it's very cheap to borrow public money at the moment, so let's run those large deficits, let's run an increase in a public debt. And at one level, I agree with that, but I want to go beyond that, which is to say, if you do worry about it, if you do believe that at some stage that level of government debt does have to be repaid, if you're either worried about it in substance or you're worried that other people worry about it, you're worried that other people have been reading another bit of Ricardo, which is about Ricardo equivalence effects, and are sitting there saying, I'm not going to spend money because I'm worried about this public debt increase. If that's what you're worried about, there is an answer. And the answer is quite straightforward. You just do money finance deficits as well. You can do overt money finance of fiscal deficits, which is what Ben Bernanke <coughs> in 2003 proposed for Japan. Now, of course, too much overt money finance of fiscal deficits would produce inflation. But if that's not our problem, maybe we shouldn't worry too much about it. We can ultimately create aggregate nominal demand as long as we are willing to seize all of the levers which are, in theory, available to us. But let's turn to the second question. Why did interest rates fall so much even before the crisis uh, broke? Presumably, it was because there was a change in the balance of ex-ante desired savings and investment, either an increase in ex-ante desired savings or a fall in ex-ante desired investment. Ben Bernanke again at one stage suggested, as many people did, a savings glut hypothesis, in particular driven by countries like China, but more generally across the world. But actually, when you look at global savings rates and global investment rates, global aggregate, you can construct the argument that the problem lay more on a, a fall in the rate of investment than a rise in the rate of savings. So why might there have been a fall in the rate of investment? Well, Paul has suggested one, and Robert has talked about it as well, an idea that with demography there is simply just less of a need to accumulate capital stock for the future. But another reason may be that information and communications technology is making capital goods so cheap that we simply don't need, in many sectors of the economy, high levels of investment. Think about this. Facebook is a company worth $150 billion of equity value. If you try and work out how many software engineers, man years, went into building the software machine, which is Facebook, my best calculation is that it is less than 5,000 engineer man years, or woman years, which is, for each one of them, $34 million of creative value. If you think about that, compared with the capital investment, the building of the productive machines, 
that had to go into building Henry Ford's car factories and the steel mills that built the machines, the, the steel that went into the machines there, this is a very low level of investment. So it may be, and there are figures in the latest IMF World Economic Outlook which suggest this, that there is a fall in the relative price of capital goods whereby many of the capital goods we need to buy are simply rel relatively cheap. But then, then leaves a question, what about that growth of leverage? Didn't that growth of leverage reflect an increased demand for loanable funds which ought to have lent the other way? I think the key point here is that there may be two reasons why we had an increase in leverage and in credit intensity which created a post-crisis debt overhang problem, but which did not essentially increase demand in the economy in the short term very much. One of them is credit to deal with inequality. Robert mentioned Keynes's ideas of secular stagnation. Keynes, somewhere in the general theory, I think it was probably chapter eight or nine, Robert would know immediately, argued that as people got richer in general over time, their marginal propensity to save uh, would increase. He said it was a psychological tendency which we are entitled to believe in uh, as much as we can believe in most things in life. I think actually as a statement secular through time, increasing aggregate marginal propensity to save of a whole society, that's not necessarily true. But I think there's very strong evidence that richer people within a society at any one time have a higher marginal propensity to save than poorer people, from which it follows that if we have an increase in inequality, we will have a deficiency of nominal demand unless we recycle it through credit. And I think there is a reasonable argument that part of what has been going on for the last 30 or 40 years, certainly the last 15, as an increase in the credit intensity of growth and leverage which eventually created a, a problem, driven out of inequality, which we needed simply to have adequate demand rather than excess demand. That is part of my explanation of why we managed to get this large increase in leverage, but without that producing, that rapid rate of growth, without that producing an excess of nominal demand to which inflation-targeting central banks would respond. I think the other thing that has been going on is leverage against real estate. I think it is possible when we have credit created by banks to finance the purchase of an asset that already exists rather than a new investment asset, that we have a phenomenon in society which is fundamentally an accumulation of credit on the asset side of bank balance sheets, private deposit money on the deposit side, on the liability side of bank balance sheets, and an increase in the price of houses but without that producing an increase in the level of nominal demand. So what follows than that for policy? I think we need actions to reduce the credit intensity of growth which we have observed. I think that means actions to deal with inequality, actions to deal with this extraordinary skew in advanced economies, part of which is naturally arising and we can't stop, but we've put fuel on the fire by a leverage effect of uh, the focus on real estate. I think we could take policies which would take out the increase in leverage which led to the problem of the debt overhang that we now face. If we did do that, we might then face a problem of deficient nominal demand. But if we faced a deficient nominal demand, then we ought to do what Paul suggested, which is to do things like public financed investment, either debt financed or money financed, remembering to go back 
to the first point I made, that there is probably only one problem in economics to which there is definitely a solution, and that is a shortage of aggregate nominal demand. Thank you.